Now she is, Captain. Isn't she a beauty? Yes, she is, Mr. Scott. Is she ready to go? Aisa. She's ready to go to the stars. This is the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. It's mission to seek out new ideas, find new games, and to boldly bring the awesome to your game. Mr. Scott, Warp 9. I Captain. And now, our host. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Trav. This is Pixie. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast. Your podcast of slaying the dragon, rescuing the attractive air, saving the town, and you still have to buy your own drinks. All right. That should get you a lo- that, that should get you enough money to buy drinks for a while. Yeah. Welcome to the TriTech Games Podcast. This week, we are talking about heroic play and why isn't it something that seems to be in most games? Fringeworthy, a unique trait shared by so few, a gift or a curse to those that can transit a portal accessing the extra-dimensional network, a pathway to a million million portals to a million million other worlds, worlds filled with terrible wonder or shocking beauty populated by denizens other than human and motivated by their own values. A creation of a race so advanced the physical laws of the universe became not barriers to their own creative drives. Will you shoulder this burden and step onto the paths for your world? Adventure in the million million worlds of Fringeworthy. Fringeworthy is a role-playing game by TriTech Games. Available at TriTechGames.com Come explore the worlds of Tritech Games. Explore the worlds of Fringeworthy. Yeah, I'm I'm sort of sad that my players never went back to Britannia Prime because uh, they actually had a really great reputation with a lot of the well with, with Mycroft and Sherlock Holmes for one thing. They also had a great with the uh, with the government and the government and with Her Majesty Queen Victoria. They and also a lot of a few other folks, and they could have uh, lost street folks who they made a lot of street folks. They could have played off of that coming back to London and just you know uh, dealing with other issues that may that may have cropped up. I mean, we're talking this is if, if there's Mycroft and Sherlock Holmes, there's definitely there's there, there's the games afoot someplace in London at that point that they, they can assist with, you know, in a non lethal way. <laughs> So yeah, it's th- things like that, and but you need that establishing scenario though. You always need that establishing scenario where they get that reputation amongst these people. Uh, either either just that first session where you know they impress the uh, the they impress the Mongols and to the point where they don't you know six peers into them and make them into pincushions, and, uh, and eventually they trust them enough they don't they don't worry about them talking to people. I mean, they they need to have their her- heroic nature tested. Granted. The other thing 
uh, I wanted to talk about was the uh, the possibility of adding to, to Fringeworthy. Since we want them out there doing these kinds of heroic things, we want them to uphold these higher principles, you know, uh, the idea of, of offering them an opportunity to be part of, of a fraternity, uh, an organization that specifically has those goals as their overarching goals. And that's why I was talking to you uh, about a code of chivalry for IDET teams. When we think of chivalry, we usually think about Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And, and this certainly you know, is where our Western concept of chivalry comes from. And okay, yeah, this is something that we discussed earlier on. You, me, and I think Paul Nunez also came into play. Let, let's see if Unida wanted to adopt what we Westerners know of chivalry. There's, there's been a number of different versions of the Code of Chivalry. The first Code of Chivalry predated the so-called, you know, knightly time, uh, which was around the 1500s. It actually was before that, and it inherited that and was codified very strongly. Uh, however, as, as we, we mentioned uh, before the uh, podcast started, the fact was that when historians try to find when was this time of chivalry really taking place, they can't find it. Every everyone who tried to find it historically, because historians throughout history have tried to talk about this and figure it out, and they can always end up pushing it back further and further. You know, uh, it, it was a couple hundred years ago. It, it was really real. But then you check back then. Now they, those people were saying, "No, no, it was before this." So it, it in fact is was a code that was never actually implemented by a formal organization. However, it was upheld by individuals of note, people who were known as being very chivalrous and upholding the chivalrous code. Well, I'm just saying, and as I said, you, me, and Paul discussed this when you brought the subject early on. Let's say IDET United tried to bring, okay, let's be chivalrous in our, in, in not the UN Charter, but this code of chivalry. You mentioned the Crusades a few minutes back. I'm sure because you have to remember Islam and Judaism and Christianity, three of the major religions in the world. The Crusades, it was. I, I don't think that the countries that are non Christian would exactly want to follow that particular code, considering what happened in the Crusades. They'd be like, um, that's what you call chivalry? Uh, no, we remember what your knights did. I think if there's going to be a quote-unquote chivalrous code that this version of Unita, this hypothetical version that we're bringing up, it would have to be, there would be massive amounts of negotiation. They would basically have to sit down with, because Christians, Jews, Islamic, they would have to all sit down with their codes of chivalry and try to hammer out something that would benefit all three that would exemplify all three of these major Abrahamic religions. 
Because, as I said, the Islamics and Jews, they would look and go, Christian knights? No. I think it has to be divorced from the direct support of any particular power structure. That's what I mean. They would have to sit down. Those three, okay, those three blocks of nations which support those three religious philosophies. Because... Yeah, the Jews and the Islams would look at Christianity and go, no. And they would have to sit down and talk and say, okay, we need to find a common code of chivalry. How are we going to act which denotes the best tenets of all three of our religions if we are going to go by this chivalric code? And if you look on chivalry on Wikipedia, it definitely has a Christian slant to it. Yes, because it was. It, I mean, it, the, the code of chivalry was, you know, promoted by the uh, 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 Holy Cat, you know, Holy Roman Church, and yeah, it definitely did. Yes, and uh, though the earlier one uh, that it was based on didn't really didn't really do that, though it did have one aspect of what they refer to as the Davidic ethics, which were you know, supporting a lot of the major things that the church was behind. But yes, I mean, yeah, we, we, we can't go and just uh, stamp, say, okay, we're going to take the you know 15th century code of chivalry and stamp it onto an organization in the 21st century and say, yeah, okay, now you live that now because it's not going to work. Yeah, here on the page, and I'll, I'll run through them real quick, Godier's Ten Commandments of Chivalry. And I mean, thou shalt believe that all the church teaches and thou shalt observe all its directions, thou shalt defend the church, thou shalt, thou shalt, let's see, respect all weaknesses and constitute thyself the defender of them, shall love the country in which you were born, shall not recoil before thine enemy, thou shalt make war against the infidel without cessation and without mercy, thou shalt perform scrupulously thy feudal duties if they not be contrary to the laws of God, they shall, you shouldn't lie and remain faithful to your pledged word. You should be generous and give largesse to everyone, and you should be everywhere and always a champion of the right and good against injustice and evil. Yeah, I'm seeing about three or four of those that a lot of blocks of countries would go, no. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you're certainly your Chinese, your Japanese, you know. Hindu, Hindus, Buddhists would look at that. Pretty much everybody who isn't, as you say, the the Abrahamic religions, right? Absolutely. So you have to look for something that's has benefited from you know the uh, the the age of enlightenment, the uh, you know all all the philosophy that has been gone and, and argued over the the, the succeeding uh, four or five centuries. Okay, to come up with something that's a that's you know more affirming, you know, uh, rather than, than just simply supporting a power structure. Yeah. I mean, there, there are portions in there like Bushido and the, uh, Chinese, oh, yes. Chi Chinese knights. Uh, they have some elements of some elements of that and some elements, totally different elements. Uh, it was talking about, you know, like, like, you know, the death before dishonor. And the only way to, 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 to take care, to re retrieve your honor is to kill yourself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. On the internet, there's also another site, which is the 21st Century Code of Chivalry, which I have in front of me. Basically, it's a lot closer to what I said to that early one. 
So its code is truth, to speak the truth, to seek the truth in every situation before making judgments, to value the truth over personal agenda or the immediate benefits of which falsehoods may offer. The second is honor, to keep your word, to know yourself, to uphold your beliefs, to act with keen moral judgment, to maintain high standards of conduct. Justice, to defend the helpless, to challenge evil wherever you encounter it, and to come to the aid of those who are so doing. Valor, to have not the lack of fear, but the ability to set aside self-interest when faced with evil and to be willing to fight for what is right regardless of what other people may say or do to you. Proudness, to have the discipline to train your body, mind, and spirit for the work of a knight and to eschew the self-destructive behaviors which tear down physical and spiritual health. Loyalty, to choose for yourself the worthy one or ones, whether they be God or your loved ones or your country or your leader or your cause, and to dedicate yourself to the protection and fulfillment of those ones. So that kind of covers the whole church thing and the feudal thing. Largesse, to give freely of what you have without impoverishing yourself, to show generosity to friend and stranger alike, to be merciful and fair in all your dealings. Courtesy, to be polite and mannerly and dress, speech, and carriage, to treat all people as equals, to be kind to animals, and in, uh, and in war or competition, to follow the rules, to lose with grace, and to win with humbleness. Okay, noblesse, to be diligent in study, enhance your knowledge of the world, practice your skills, use your natural gifts to generate goodness, and thereby enriching your life and the lives of those around you. And the last one, which is humility, to have all the above qualities without ever proclaiming them, to bear the heavy burden of chivalry without so much as a breath of exertion, to be a silent strength which supports and sustains us all. Humility is the most difficult principle to master. Only the very best knights do. <laughs> if so, my Dementia Radio fans know me as Trav, Humility and, I, humility and I are distant neighbors. We are quite far apart. <laughs> Even a very uh, more game, gaming version of this, unfortunately, would fall into the TLDR sy- syndrome with a lot of players. There you go. What? I got to read all this? That's, right. that's a lot shorter than the UN charter that's in the back of Fringeworthy, I'll tell you that. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. <laughs> You know, this is just an example code that somebody put together based upon the chivalrous code, but also make, trying to make it work with all the different countries um, to be, you know, something that you could live in your daily life, you know, rather and not, you know, uh, and apply to as many people as possible. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. So an organization such as that, Fringe Knights or Fringe... Uh, you know, there's got to be another wor- better word than night to... Ooh, Bruce, Bruce, remember the one, it's a prime. The Fringe Marshals land, where they found a portal out in Utah, and it was like 1884, and basically they're going out with on horseback with six guns and exploring the fringe paths that way. 
that might be a good code for them. If anyone ever wanted to do a fringe Marshall campaign, and I don't have my book with me, but it is a prime. I want to say it's in from either the first or second portals book. So it's somewhere in between positive and negative 100. But that would be a good code for those fringe marshals to do. Yeah. And I like that term, fringe marshals, because it doesn't have that that night thing that people get in, in, you know, get in the way of. A marshal is just that, the person that basically, we, we think of marshalling a bunch of people. It's, that's the person that gathers you know, the resources they need in order to go out and do some important task. So fringe marshals, I like that term. And I will forgive Rich for using the spelling for martial art as opposed to martial dodge from Gunsmoke. I looked at that and I'm like, but yeah, as soon as you were reading that quote, I'm thinking, yeah, those, the fringe marshals, that would be a fantastic code for them to use because it'd be like the Texas Rangers. They have their own code that they go by. And I mean, they're they're effective even today. Because one thing across my mind is that this could actually, you know, uh, be also a, a fraternal organization within within not just not not within not, not only within the various teams, but also within the various cultures. You know, I, I could actually see something like this coming from the Victor from the Victorians going. Well, you know, we 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 decided that we needed some sort of rules of engagement and operation, and they tried out this. Uh, and of course, being Victorian, so called the Brotherhood, uh, the Brotherhood of the Pathways, or something along that line. You yeah, know, basically, like that. space. You know, basically fringe masons. Yeah, and and of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all, an, an organization that also has a lot of baggage. Okay. But the, the benefit of using marshals over like brotherhood is that it's it is uh, not gender yeah oriented yeah. so yeah you know and and that's why I like it so but I, I see you know, the idea of doing this you know saying hey there's this organization you know the the fringe marshals you know who, who you know who's you know really you know they're, they're you know they really want to go out there and do good on the fringe pass. And that's their primary motivation, even over, you know, um, you know, the good, you know, the good of, of the, the of Earth Prime. Now, of course, they would never say that directly, but it would be like, you know, we're going to do good wherever we go and we're not going to allow, you know, the fact that we are not under the eyes of the people that we're doing it for to allow us, you know, um, license to do things that we would with we would not want anybody to know about. So, you know, in other words, you know, they it's they're they're placing themselves uh, you know, up on a hill to be seen by by wearing this badge or this hat or this scarf or whatever they would decide to use as their emblem, you know, uh, you know, the patch on their arm, you know, the ring on their finger Probably something bigger than a ring, though, because you know you again you're trying to identify yourself as you know as something to remind you as well as everyone else who you are when they're you know when they're interacting with you, but you know within the course the the necessities of 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 the mission if they're being undercover of course they're not going to walk around with a you know with a you know a, a big you know pointy hat <laughs> or something. Though I still have an image in my head of of a uh, of Sam Elliott on the ba- on the on the back of a horse going, son, 
are you a special kind of stupid? Or are you just trying yeah. to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, you know, that's that's going to happen, too. That's gonna happen Dennis too. Weaver, McLeod, yeah. McLeod, friends. Oh, uh, yeah. Don't yeah. myself at all there. Yeah. Oh, dear God, I'm also thinking of... Um, what was the one with the Mountie in Chicago? Due South, I love that series. I got the first season on DVD. Oh, man, that show's hilarious. Yeah. Oh, dear God. Be, there's another organization, not not Marshalls, Fringe Mounties. It's another name. No, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Okay. I mean, that was, and, and they do have that in like Hardwire Hinterland. You know, that was, you know, the Hinterpol. You know, those people really don't have any authority, yet they assume it. You know, they go around and they do good things. They're not like like Interpol here on in the in the real world, where they're just a uh, information you know uh, clearinghouse. Those you know in Interpol, those guys actually go around and and do you know go on missions and such, do what needs to be done in order to to, to promote the Commonwealth. So, uh, anyways, I, I just like the idea that there should be an option for people who want to play more heroically, you know, that there would be an organization to support them, to, to you know, to teach them the way, to provide them with resources and, and, and inspiration, you know, of, of, of those kinds of things. Uh, because, you know, there's, in the darkest moments, you know, that's when you look to your past. You know, you look to those who've gone before you for guidance and say, yeah, I'm going to be like, you know, Sam Ganji. Oh, well, actually, a character who died a heroic death, even though his actions weren't all that heroic, Boromir. Yeah. He, d- he died f- protecting the, the hobbits. <laughs> to me, the, the, one of the most heroic characters uh, was in the movie Rocketeer. You know, Pee Wee, the guy that was the mechanic who was the Rocketeer's, you know, kind of mentor, you know, like a father figure. Alan Arkin's character, yeah. You know, they, they took him and they were going to push his head down onto that hot grill and burn him. And, you know, he was going to let it happen rather than give up the hero. And the hero had to, you know, had to stop it from happening. And I'm saying is that, you know, that guy, he would have done it. The hero wouldn't have done it at that point. Later on, he, he finally rose to the, you know, to, to, to the challenge. You know, Pee uh, Wee was a hero already. He knew what it meant. He knew what it meant to, you know, to count the cost ahead of time and 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 not betray, you know, and not give in no matter what it cost him. And yeah, PV was PV. Yeah, was that was that moral compass for Cliff Secord because, you know, Cliff wanted to be have the jetpack and the helmet and all that. But I think he was a stunt pilot, and PB was his mechanic. Yes. So yeah, PB being older and from that previous generation, you know, had the little bit higher moral standing. Yeah, taught Cliff how to, pardon the pun, fly the straight and narrow by his own actions. He didn't just say the word; he lived it. He walked the walk as well as talking the talk. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, thinking of another organization that would. Uh, they actually also has a, a similar code of honor, honor, not as many, not as many points. It's the French Foreign Legion. 
They actually do have a card. I'm looking at it right now. Uh, they basically, uh, things such as, Legionnaire, you are a volunteer serving France with honor and fidelity. Uh, another one, the, the mission is sacred. You carry it out until the end, and if necessary, in the field at the risk of your life. So it does have this sort of, you're doing this for the for the greater good. And I can see the, and I'm, you know, people are going to groan at this one, the fringe foreign legion. Or just fringe legionnaires. Fringe yeah. legionnaires, yeah. yeah. Of course, you know, I, I'm sure that the Vox Romanas will love that. <laughs> oh, the Vox Romanas called them Mundus Alternus legionnaires. So, you know. <laughs> Every time I think of the French Foreign Legion, I go back to the, the beginning fight in The Mummy with mm-hmm. Benny. Yeah. <laughs> it looks yeah. like you're now in command, O'Donnell. Yeah. <laughs> No, I keep going to the, the to uh, Bo Jest where they're busy giving the heroes well the heroes uh, b- uh, a burial for the one guy, and they had to put a dog at his feet, and that was the the hated sergeant. Then they set fire uh, to the building. There have been heroic, you know, uh, chivalrous organizations in the past, and and uh, I'm glad you found another one besides the most obvious one. You know, most organizations, you know, firefighters police forces they have a code that they're supposed to follow you know which is basically that noblesse uh noblesse oblique you know uh you know they 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 protect and serve was you know is the motto was uh, of the police force it's something that i think should be more overt in fringeworthy it probably more overt in almost all games where you want heroic play People will say, well, you know, I'm the, you know, I, I'm playing my character. Yes, but you're the son of the king, okay? And you need to live, you know, live up to your, your obligations. You need to live up to your station. You need to, and and, uh, Jap- and Japanese animation, by the way, really, really captures this. I mean, I've never seen anything that has more family obligation you know, and and the idea of up, up, upholding honor and stuff, then a lot of the the Japanese animation shows that I've I've watched. So they're a good place to go to kind of get the idea. Now they go too far, I think, where they're like, "Well, this will bring dishonor to my fa- our family, so you must allow this really heinous thing to happen, so that you know this that, that doesn't happen." And that's where you need to draw the line. Say no, you know. <laughs> He says, honor is not served by, by doing dishonorable things. That's where you don't learn from Japanese animation because they do an awful lot of that too. And I would say that besides, you know, the, the uh, Unita and, and, the very, and, the, and, it's, and it's fringe really, there's, all, there's other groups. I mean, the other obvious group, of course, is the Victorians or the, Brit- the Britons. And, they're, and remember who's founding them, you know, T- Terrence Greystone, you know, a.k.a. Boy. You know, yeah. and and you know, if if there ever was a knight errant, Tarzan was one. You know, <laughs> and yeah, and yeah, he was everything that you know the 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 nobles were supposed to be. He was the one who you know by his birth you know was noble, and he because he was you know a noble, he didn't engage in like cannibalism or a number of other behaviors that he could have you know when he was too young to kn- to know of his own heritage but it was in his blood 
So, you know, that, that was in the Tarzan novels. And uh, you know, we don't, of course, believe in that now, but it doesn't change the fact that if you, you know, that you shouldn't expect that kind of, of uh, noble, you know, behavior from people who are in a position where they are looked up to, you know. I mean, we, what, I think it's a shame that we, we, we do that to our sports stars. We, we, make, we make it too hard for them, you know. I mean, they weren't, you know, they weren't paragons before they became famous, but as soon as they become famous, we expect them to live the lives of paragons when they're surrounded by so much temptation. So, you know, they, you, don't, you don't expect your heroes to be perfect or your, your hero, you know, so, at this, so there have to also include, you know, paths of, of redemption if they do fall somewhat. Now, of course, since he's on, you know, um, Victorian Earth, which is a story verse, the blood of nobles does flow through him and they do actually have an in-game effect. <laughs> yeah, see, he does have to behave properly. And the last point uh, I wanted to bring up is is that if you want people to act heroically, don't make them poor. Okay, I mean, there's one thing to rise from poverty to nobility, but it's something else when um, you have characters who are constantly in a situation where they're barely eking by and they're constantly having to make a decision between doing the right thing and something that provides for the survival of the people nearest to them. So they should live an appropriate lifestyle. They should live heroically. You know, they should, you know, uh, they, they should be able to to afford the things that we want our heroes to have. And, you know, whether that's done through the rewards that the game provides or whether the GM just simply says, you're heroes, therefore, you know, you... You know, have you know, uh, you you have the rights of nobles or whatever. Uh, wherever you go, they someone has to provide you with hospitality. Uh, you in D and D, you got to a certain level and you got followers automatically. You know, it's just it was just because of who you were, and and I think that should happen also. You you shouldn't have penniless knights or or uh, you know, uh, unless of course there was a reason for it. You know, but I'm just saying, as a as a normal thing, I think in some regards D and D it makes a mistake because you know they they talk about you know adventurers should live the life of like say a middle class person where they don't have to worry about having coin in their pocket for a drink or something like that, but they do you know they they don't have so much money that they don't need to go out and venture, yeah. But I would say that, yes, they should have so much money that they don't need to go out and adventure. They should be adventuring for, for more noble, more heroic reasons. Yeah. I mean, some some game systems, the money, I mean, let's be honest, money doesn't really come into play in, in fate unless you, unless, you, unless you, the GM, make it come into play. So there you have to find a different carrot if you, in, in that cash. Maybe better, more extras they can, they, can, they can tag along, bring along with them, you know. Still restrict how many they can have at one time, but still give them some, they're, they're called extras. They're basically equipment, but not because they can be also th- you know, people or things or, and items. Or even a book that tells you how to, how to survive in the wilderness. That could be an extra. But yeah, give them, give them, let them make their, and let them make their own extras. Don't just give them something. Say, hey, okay, what do you want? We'll make it work you know, and, and do it that way. 
Yeah, Bureau 13 uh, agents are, are paid, you know, uh, money that basically is tax paid. We don't say how much it is usually, but it's like, you know, enough that they live well. And they never have to worry about, you know, uh, providing for themselves when they're not on the job. So a bureau uh, a fringeworthy, you know, uh, we've had some discussions about how much should that signing bonus be. Some people say a hundred thousand. Uh, you said a million, John. Initially, yeah, maybe it should be that much, you know. But if you, you know, if you go and send out agents, you know, uh, give them twenty thousand dollars to live off of, you know, and then they go out into a world in which they can. Easily, you know, uh, you know, become crime lords or rob a bank or something like that, and then live the, you know, uh, the in the manner to which they would like to become accustomed. Then you're basically, you know, sabotaging their characters. You know, someone who's as valuable as a fringeworthy should be paid commensurate with his value. Now, yeah, in the D20 version, and hopefully in the Terrace Worlds version, we do have the story, and part of that story was, yeah, they got a million dollars or the or equivalent. Most of the most of, the, of IDET one donated that money. It's sort of our way of yeah. saying, yeah, don't worry about money, you'll get more. It's you know these people did the altru- altruistic thing and did things to help other people. Yeah, I think Gordon donated back to New York. Waylay donated back to China. Yep. Sayuri donated to Japan, you know, basically starting and doing things that were appropriate for their characters. Yeah. Yeah. But the point was, is that afterwards they weren't penniless. Right. And sometimes that happens. I mean, this has always been one of the problems for like the, uh, um, in the Paladin, in D&D. They have no money except for a, a suit of armor and a horse or something. You know, literally you have like, they barely have a couple of pennies, you know, a, a couple of gold pieces to rub between their fingers. That was always a problem for paladins because of that. You know, they, they never, they, all the paladins I ever played were basically penniless. So you all took a vow of po- poverty. <laughs> Didn't you know that? Yeah, yeah. Well, they had a three point five book. It was one of the ultimate <laughs> books that they that wizards put out, and you could choose various one of various vows to supplement your character, and one of them was poverty. Mm-hmm. Well, if you choose it, that's one thing. But I mean, it was part of the character write up in the in the first edition, second edition books that you essentially were. You know, if you chose to be a paladin. You were essentially choosing a life of poverty. Yeah, you know, and and a life of service was one thing, but a life of poverty always seemed to me a little bit irksome because you know there was a because a it didn't make a lot of sense. You're walking around wearing plus three armor, plus five sword. Those items in and of themselves, if sold, would be worth millions of gold pieces. Yeah. So you know, regardless of what the book value was in the book, I'm just so you, you could basically you could you know buy the entire town with with a few items that you're carrying on yourself. But otherwise, you're walking around with no money. So you don't want to get that kind of a situation where people feel like they are. Uh, being hampered, their hands are being tied, you know, uh, especially keeping them from doing, being generous. You want the people to be able to have enough money, enough resources, so they can be generous to the people around them without being 
you know, like your uh, friend, the well, even your friend who was the super rich. Okay, he, you know, he used he he didn't use his money ostentatiously. He used it, you know, to achieve the ends of the team. Oh no, Eric's character, Jonathan Michael Price of Fourth. Oh no, he used it ostentatiously. He went out and said, "I'm going to go buy the paper." He came back. Did you buy the paper? Yes. Where is it? No, I bought the paper. As in the business. <laughs> so yeah. Oh no, he was quite ostentatious with his, with, with his money. But yeah, he would also he would use his money to get out of situations to help the team. Um, one of the players decided to run a game where an alien came in and he basically said, I have resources. Basically bought the guy out. Not a, And we were all ready to go to war. I mean, we're getting the weapons and everything. Jonathan Michael Price IV, he, you know, does a few business deals, talks to the guy and says, go to this location, you'll have this amount of precious metals for you. And the guy left. And Eric pulled that, and me and the rest of the players are just looking at him, just glaring. Because <laughs> we were ready for a knockdown, drag out, Donnie Brook, brouhaha, whatever you want to call it. And then he pulls it. You were looking forward to it. Oh, no, we were. We were, I mean, you know, the high-powered ammo and everything. And then he goes and buys the guy out. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, you know, that's where people need to work together. Yeah. 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 I was, I've, been, I've been looking to find some uh, real-life paladins. Uh, and the closest I came to, of course, is uh, St. George. But he was, of course, um, sacrificed by the Romans. It's a Christian martyr. Yeah. So I don't think he had that much money. Well, the person that was probably considered the most, yeah, the most paladin-like, okay. Um, I would say Sir Galahad. Well, I mean, a real person. Okay, not... Oh. Yeah. Bertrand de Bourne. There was this one guy who basically um, started on one end, like in Spain, and fought his way over to, you know, uh, Istanbul and died in battle there. But I mean, you know, and and he was the the the, the you know just going from from where he was needed to where he was needed till finally he had no strength left and died. Okay, that's the that that's like the ultimate of the you know the uh, of the knight errant or maybe I'm using the wrong term you know the the the, the knight on a mission you know basically uh, and everyone considered him to be probably the ultimate knight and I'm I'm trying to it was in that wiki uh, on wikipedia about uh, knights and they they talked about him yeah i i think what a lot of folks fail to understand a lot of game designers fail to understand uh, that if you have if you have a person who actually is something like a paladin he's going to have at the very least the support of his religion behind him. Sure. He may not have two, two pence to rub together. He can go to any, any of his, uh, any temples and they will, you know, put him up for the night, take care of him, feed him. You know, it is a bit of a religious, it is a religious, uh, thing, you know, so pal, you know, paladins are expected to, you know, that but you know if, if you're not a paladin but you but you are a knight with the full plate and so forth you best have a castle to go along with it and all the land that you would they would require because that stuff ain't cheap to maintain and you ain't going and you're not going to get it unless you do have land to support you because you know to be let's be honest uh knights of old all were nobles 
We're, there's the difference between the reality, John, and, 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 and what we're trying to promote here. Okay. It was Sir Edward Woodville is the person that's considered probably the most, you know, um, you know, ideal knight, you know, he, he was, uh, he basically rode from battle to battle across Europe and died in 1488 in Brittany. And he, wit- he essentially wit- witnessed the fall of the age of chivalry and the rise of modern European warfare. You know, the, the idea of the Crusades was better than the practice of the Crusades, okay? You know, knights were, pe- you know, were people that were, um, you know, were sent out from, you know, from castles and, and lands and dukes and duchesses, okay, to to provide service to their king, you know, to who was, you know, going, who supposedly was, who was hopefully defending against, you know, their, you know, their aggressors, but in reality was more often just trying to make a land grab and he needed people to do that, you know, and so he, the, the knights provided that thing. But, you know, ideally the knight is somebody who goes out and rights wrongs and, and uh, supports the common weal and is everything that we've just talked about. So, and, I, and that's what we want to promote because that promotes heroic play. Yeah, mentioning the crusade, I do remember reading someplace or hearing someplace about one crusading group that went and basically said, hi, uh, we want to talk and traded with, with the Moors instead of actually or with, the, with, his, with, the, with the folks down there and basically came back with lots of money and people were happy and said, yay, and they didn't kill a single person. There were lots of, of um, groups of knights that that, that that parlayed with the Moors. Okay, it, you know, it, 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 it wasn't. You know, uh, everyone thinks of it as being the very homogenous group, and it was not in any regard. You know, so yeah. Okay, so thanks everybody for talking about this. I know it was kind of a minefield uh, topic, and. You know, and, and we and we don't want to get you know to keep people from you know having fun and and, and getting to uh, blow off some steam, but we're just saying that it, you know that somewhere in in all of role playing there really should be a place for true heroic play, and we want to do you know we we would love to hear more ideas from our audience as to how they've been able to achieve heroic play in their games and their campaigns and please post that to our facebook groups and to the various uh, uh, google plus and uh, the uh, tritaggamers.com sites because we'd love to hear that and we will have you know more for you next week but until then this is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Richard Tahoka. Wait till you see what's coming next. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at TriTech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers.
Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org, colon 8027.